Welcome to the Boomix Show, Lives of Money podcast, and we have a interesting, unique episode for you today. If you have been listening to prior episodes, you know that we have launched the Boomix Academy, and all members who join at the um, free membership level are automatically enrolled in these podcast companion course. For each and every episode, we are building additional content because quite simply, there is not enough time in a podcast to dive deeper into substantive legal matters if you're interested. Normally, the uh, content, by definition actually, in the companion course is not publicly available. However, we are going to make an exception today to give you a test drive so you can check out the look and feel of the content that is in the companion course and decide whether it has value to you. And once again, the companion course is additional content for each and every episode so that we can provide resources that we cannot provide uh, on the podcast. Today's topic relates to episode three. So we're going back into time. And if you haven't listened to episode three, I interview a elite attorney about his practice and the concept of family wealth and how the great families in America manage wealth, but also the definition of wealth and money in general. And one of the great features or benefits of the companion course is that, of course, as we try to teach students legal concepts in little bite-sized pieces, there's no promos, there's no ads, <laughs> there's no interruptions for a shout-out to our sponsor. However, out of respect for podcast theme song and Jack Tar, we will play the introductory song because I love it so much. Welcome, Boomexers. Let's throw out the old playbook. It's time to tear down the traditional way of looking at your life and money. And leverage the laws of money to our advantage. That's right. There are laws of money. And those who learn and leverage the laws of money win. And sometimes win big. Stay tuned as asset protection attorney Daryl Tuttle, educator and leader of the Boomex Nation, shows us how. Beginners, investors, entrepreneurs, fellow attorneys, are you ready? Are you ready? Let's arm this ball. Now, here's the Boomex Show. The Laws of Money. I know exactly what you're thinking. You are likely thinking to yourself, how can we learn the law? Lawyers go to law school for three years and they practice for five more years before they get the hang of it. At least that was my experience. However, we are only talking about one area of law and that regards the laws of money. Estate planning, elder law, tax planning, business planning. Now that is a vast area of law, I concede. However, we're not talking about criminal law. We're not talking about civil procedure and constitutional law. If we bring those things up, it's just to share an anecdote and to have some fun. <laughs> And we can have fun with the laws of money as well. However, when deciding whether I should uh, put the academy together or not, I thought the thing is, uh, the conversation has really been hijacked. The financial services industry has correctly identified that there are a massive amounts of people who are entering into retirement with massive amounts of money. And the legal services industry has abdicated the conversation. And uh, my belief is that the reason legal services 
has done so is just because it's not trained to market. It's not trained to publish podcasts and, and whatnot. There's certainly lawyers out there doing that, but lawyers who are running podcasts tend to speak to other lawyers. Those podcasts are business to business, lawyer to lawyer. There's not very many out there in which we are trying to just have a conversation with you. And that's unfortunate because the second reason I think that legal services industry has abdicated the conversation is because there's no, lawyers are busy, man. I mean, like, it, I'm semi-retired now. I had a successful career of which I'm proud. And now this is as much fun for me and as recreation for me. And it speaks to my desire. When I started, graduated from, with my first college degree, my goal was to become a history professor. And if I go on these tangents about history, it's because and that's just what I want to do. It's interesting it, to me. It's very fun. It's fascinating. And it's always educational. If you don't, do not know where you come from, I do not believe in the expression, history will repeat itself. Um, th there are empires rise and then they fall. If the next empire comes along and rises and falls, oh, look, it repeated itself. Yeah, but it, it rose and it fell from completely different reasons because it was a completely different culture at a completely different time. Now, human beings only have a certain set of characteristics poured into them. And so, of course, there will be sim similarities. However, when it comes to the law in particular, the law is based on stare decisis. That's a Latin term, and it means standing on prior decisions. And so the legal industry correctly, it's a great idea, and it goes like this. If there's a conflict before a court between two parties and we resolve it, whatever rule the judge applied or made up in that prior court case, we're just going to apply that so we don't have to keep making up rules. That will give consistency to people and they can rest assured that there are laws of money. That way they know how to manage their wealth. If you think about some of the great revolts in uh, medieval Europe, in Britain in particular, it was really about property rights. The great Magna Carta was essentially a contract between the nobility and the crown to identify what their property rights were because they were uncertain. When a law regarding property is established, for the most part, it, we are loath to make very many modifications to it. And when we do make modifications, they can be significant. For the most part, they're not. When George W. Bush came into um, office, the Medicaid look-back period was three years. Well, through legislative warfare, they changed it to five years. Well, that's not, to me, a significant change. There's still a Medicaid look-back period. There's still Medicaid. You announce five years instead of three. And estate tax on the federal level goes up and down all the time. And so we just have to adjust. But estate tax is, is here. It's here to stay. And that's something that we have to plan for, especially if you're high net worth. And people become angry or upset about, you know, estate plans. I only want to have to do this once. <laughs> okay, let's get back to reality where the world changes from time to time. And if there is an adjustment to your estate plan based on legal changes, it's not significant. We're making an amendment. Sometimes it's easier just to do a complete overall, but deal with it. And so lawyers are at their desk working. When I was uh, busy in my practice at, at its height, I was just like every other lawyer, working 12 hours a day, sometimes seven days a week. And that's not good. Financial services industry... If you are a financial advisor, love your brother and sister. However, your industry is different. The one distinction between legal services and financial services is that there is um, financial advisor. That's not a profession. And that if that offends you, let me define that more carefully. Some industries or professions require passing like a bar exam or your medical boards, or in the case of a CPA, the CPA exam. 
And that's not the same as passing your Series 7 or Series 6 stockbroker license. You can take a two-week course on the stock market and rack up 50 hours of instruction and then sit for a qualifying exam to become a stockbroker. And then you're connected to a broker-dealer as a financial advisor, and you're limited to the offerings that you make and the recommendations you make are limited to what your broker-dealer will allow you to sell. And for the most part, we reached a point with technology where mutual funds and annuities and life insurance and even stocks are not under the control of the financial advisor. They're just handed to them as a quote-unquote product. Financial advisors actually call it product. And a product. when I hear the word product, I think something that you sell at Walmart. I'm going to go to Walmart and get products. And so financial advisory industry is a sales industry. And although there's some risks that they take for the advice that they give, and they can either sell for a commission or give financial advice for a fee, there's no difference. Now, most of the products, quote unquote, that are sold really exist only because of the law. And therein lies the problem because the financial advisory firm, this is just, this doesn't, our industry does just simply does not have the same educational requirements as a legal profession. Not even close. You can't even argue that with me. The second difference is ethics. So there are ethical requirements, of course, for financial advisor, but it does not compare to the, the rigorous, like on the bar exam, it's a two-day test and half of a day is just nothing but ethics and ethics is a completely separate book and it's the governing body is the Supreme Court <laughs> of the state. And you swear an oath. And that's really the main point is that financial services industry, you're not raising your hand in front of a judge and swearing an oath and you're not admitted to practice. I don't know if you knew this, but you graduate from law school and then you sit for the bar exam and then you pass the bar exam. You're still not a lawyer. You're not a lawyer until you sit, stand in front of a judge with a robe on, raise your right hand and swear an oath to the constitution and to the laws of your state and to God almighty. And you'll be stri stricken down if you <laughs> violate the rules. And uh, so that's like a key difference between the, the two industries. It's unfortunate that the financial services industry has just has the money available to uh, market. And I can remember when the internet was first invented, no one was, was, understood Google wasn't even around when the internet first came out. Now, of course, it's all about marketing and algorithms and organic placement with Mr. Google. And if you type in any legal term, it more likely than not, the first two or three pages of Google pages that are fed to you are from financial services. For example, Investopedia is actually an okay website. It's like Wikipedia, but it's only for financial services, but also legal terms. If you type in qualified, a required minimum distribution, for example, I just grabbed that out of my brain. That is a term related to retirement accounts. And what you'll find is Investopedia is feeding you the answer. And I've actually studied it. The people who write those are not lawyers. And in some cases, they're not even financial advisors. They, the financial services industry has just hired professional marketers to provide a lot of content that is okay so that they can get an organic feed. And so you, you take that and then they're selling you courses on wh whatever. One of the, a lot of the leading podcasts in the financial service in industry 
are good, but they're by people who don't even have experience with financial services. I've already mentioned to you, Dave Ramsey, for example, ha has no experience of giving legal advice whatsoever. He's not even licensed. And many of the things that he says is just simply incorrect. <laughs> I, I can prove it. <laughs> and if anyone's offended by that, or if he is, let's have a public debate because I think I'm pretty sure I can hold my own on that. But, um, and so it's some misinformation in some cases. It, it really is. And it's unfortunate. For example, retirement accounts uh, is 100% legal. The, the investments I've already pointed out that are inside of a, your retirement account can be exactly the same as the investments inside of your non-qualified account and a, a brokerage account. So you can buy a mutual fund. Let's suppose you had $100,000 and you took $50,000 and $50,000. And with one pot of money, you were able to buy a mutual fund inside of your retirement account. And with the other $50,000, you already met your limit on the retirement account. So, you, so the remaining $50,000, you bought the same exact mutual fund in a brokerage account that didn't, did not qualify as a retirement account. Same premium or investment going in, purchased at the exact same day at the exact same market price. Now, after 10 years, the value of the mutual fund inside of the retirement account will be much higher because of tax deferral. And another, the investment that you made into the brokerage or uh, retirement account, that's a tax deduction. And so your overall um, tax liability went down that year, not up, and the money made inside of the retirement account is tax deferred. No, that is because of the ERISA code, and it's also because of the tax code. It has nothing to do with the financial services industry. And the rules about ERISA is one of the most complicated, in fact, I, I might even say it is the most complicated code, maybe the rules about patents <laughs> might be more difficult. Medicaid's pretty difficult. The tax code is difficult, but ERISA is even more complicated when you get to that higher level. So much so that I refer any kind of case out about any kind of complicated ERISA to those who are specialists in that area. So there you go. And, and But yet, most of what you know about retirement accounts, you are receiving that information from the financial services industry from a financial advisor who has no training or experience in it. <laughs> None, zero. And so that's a problem. So w one of the things we're trying to address in the, the academy is just to help people understand some basic legal concepts. And so that's just my way. If you're listening to this inside of the academy, good for you, because what you're doing is you're just taking a little extra time to just slow down and, and learn the laws of money and in many cases, uh, we will actually make reference to the law so you can go as deep as you want to it. You could even read the code if you wanted to. Now, episode three, which this lesson in the companion course speaks to, it was a interview I did with a buddy of mine who has one client. It's a famous family. I can't say their name. I promise I wouldn't. But if I did say the name, you would know the name. And this family is on second or third generational wealth. And when you're at that level, what you can afford to just bring everything in-house, like call it a family office. And so the family ha has one or two, maybe more, depends on the size of the family and, and what they're trying to accomplish, attorneys full-time. And, and the attorney just has that one job. They, they work for one family. 
And then, of course, they had their own portfolios and they had their own financial advisors and their own accountants inside. And by the second or third generation, of course, there's a lot of grandkids and a lot of cousins and a lot of nephews and nieces. And she's like the family, of course, is expanding. And the family leader three generations ago grew the wealth, but continued to run the wealth, set it up so that it would run itself like a little money making machine for generations to come, a family bank. And two episodes ago, so this is episode 20, what are we, 24, episode 22, I talk about the family bank. That um, exists only because of trust. Now, lesson one of the companion course, we spent time defining the words estate. And we explained that by way of review, I, I laid out the following terms, estate, gross estate, taxable estate, and net estate. You hear the word estate and estate planning bandied about weekly, maybe daily. And estate planning is about estate transfer. The correct definitions of of estate, which are contained in uh, Lesson 1, points out that estates are created at the time of the death of the asset owner. They do not exist until then, unless you're in a bankruptcy aside, an estate defines the assets that you no longer have control over because you're dead. The word probate comes from the Latin probo probari, which means to prove. And assets must have title. When, um, in a sense, estate, that term, means the assets of a now deceased asset owner. The title of assets might be in your name outright. If it is in your name outright... Daryl Tuttle owns a home. There's a deed recorded that says Daryl Tuttle owns the residence at 123 East Main. When I, the minute my heart, the second my heart stops beating, title is clouded. You can't take it with you. That's the first law of money. There's no title to the personal residence now. That's a problem. The law does not like that, will not stand for it. Now, what the law does is it imposes an estate, and that's an administrative holding area so that a personal representative or executor can be assigned to administer, that's what the lawyers call it, all of the assets of the now deceased asset owner and then pay all the creditors, pay any tax, pay any final administrative fees and then distribute to the heirs and make sure that they have legal title with the correct legal documents, the personal representative's deed. That's the probate process. I pointed out that one of the advantages to probate, everybody try, wants to avoid probate, that's fine. However, there are advantages to probate. In particular, that's the only way to permanently bar creditors. If you pass away, everyone thinks of them, like I'm going to pass away at age 100 and I'm going to have all my debts paid off and blah, blah. Maybe you're still working or maybe physicians or even attorneys or contractors. Even after you retire, there's still a possibility until the statute of limitations runs of a, a malpractice lawsuit or a claim uh, a subcontractor or a customer brings a lawsuit. The only way to put all of those claims to rest is through the probate procedure, the um, creditor resolution process and living trust and having all your assets passed through transfer on death deeds. And the, what the financial services industry does is transfer on death beneficiary designation forms. That's fine, except you're not going to have a legal bar to claims in the future. And unfortunately, if the personal representative, my friends, distributes the estate before claims are paid, then 
the personal representative is personally liable to the creditor. And it's only a four-month creditor process. Just open a probate, put, give notice to the world, send out notice to reasonably ascertainable creditors. And after four months, that's it. The creditor's out of luck forever. That's the big disadvantage to probate avoidance. Now, in the second lesson, it's the episode, My Dad Died, and I have a visceral conversation about that. Now, that, there's nothing legal about the second episode. It's just me ex explaining how I feel. And however, in the BoomX Academy companion course, it's mostly legal. And, and I explain there that there are different types of, the law has categorizes property in different ways. There's real estate versus real property. I'm not going to tell you what the difference is because I want you to take the class because in the class I explain the difference between real property and real estate. And then there's personal property, tangible and intangible. Right now, I'm um, recording my voice. If I publish the voice on a podcast and somebody purchases something because of my podcast, the money that was made was because of my voice. And I, I don't know if you knew this, but you actually have a personal property interest. Your voice is personal property, believe it or not. It's like intellectual property, a brand, a trademark. It doesn't exist in the material world. It's digital, but it's personal property and it can be transferred uh, upon your death to somebody else. You can transfer rights to the likeness. Try um, putting a product out with the face of Elvis Presley on the mug and making money off it and see what happens if you don't believe that an image can be considered personal property. And then on episode three, what I, I just wanted to discuss and get the terminology out is the word trust because family wealth, these great families that create a money-making machine for the benefit of the family, a family bank that's generational, the only way to do that is with a trust. Trusts hold assets for personal planning and personal wealth. LLCs and corporations hold business assets. Now, a family, a great families made their wealth from business, so they have a mix. However, tr trusts are owning shares of, of business, and th there can be complicated arrangements and configurations for the plan. The case design can be complicated, but basically those are the building blocks. You're transferring wealth either through deed or contract through trust, revocable or irrevocable, and business entities. And those are the building blocks of a great estate plan. If you do it correctly, then not only, can you imagine, put it this way, can you imagine this great family? I'm not going to say their name, I can't, but just picture in your mind, okay, Rockefeller. That's probably a bad example. John D. Rockefeller, by the way, if he adjusted for a time value of money in today's value, he is three or four times wealthier than Jeff Bezos. That's how incredibly wealthy Rockefeller was. That, so choosing Rockefeller is probably a bad idea just because he, he was so big. Kennedy, maybe. Kennedy was a much smaller family, not as wealthy. And everyone knows that that family just behaves differently than all the other families in America in a way. They just, they're just very close-knit. And so family wealth is a term that is not monetary. Like When I say family wealth, I don't mean the money, just the way the family views itself. They are in it together. They have annual meetings. They bring up young family members. They let them know. They don't keep the wealth a secret. One, one of the things that 
makes me cranky in consultations is when clients just are very secretive about their wealth and they don't want the kids to know. And that's just weird. <laughs> it, it's very common, but it's very weird because you're keeping a secret from your children. They're going to find out <laughs> one day and then just imagine what they think. Like, how weird was mom? She was living like she was a pauper this whole time, trying to act like she didn't have any money and she had $7 million. How weird. You're just The only thing you're going to do is embarrass yourself after death. And the second thing is just imagine had you included the conversation like the great families do and say, look, I might be the title owner, but that does not mean that I'm the only person with an interest. I explain in episode 22 and 23, like this concept of remaindermen. So when you create a trust, there's a trust maker or trustor or grantor. Now that's a, a job title. There's three different job titles based on different, what I'll explain in a minute. But it's the person that creates it and transfers the asset into the trust. Trustor is a um, medieval common law term. Grantor is a tax term. And trustmaker is the modern equivalent, like trying to use words that explains it, trustmaker. And then once um, that the desire, the elements of a trust, the only thing you need to create a trust is an expression of that, that desire identification of a trustee, the person that manages it, a beneficiary, and then transferring an asset into it. It can be a $10 bill. And then the law imposes a trust. There's no paper signed. Now, all trusts, real trusts, have a trust agreement because we want to be very particular about and very granular how we direct the trustee and the beneficiaries, letting them know what their rights and responsibilities are. But the law imposes a, a constructive trust if those elements are met. Somebody gives money to another person for the benefit of another person. That's it. <laughs> that, you, that, that's a trust. And the trustee is a person, that's the job title. The trustee is the person that's responsible who has legal title. And so, so if you look up a trust, let's say there's real estate. That's a great example because real estate requires a deed to be recorded. Think about it. You can go to the county auditor and look up any real estate parcel in America. And what you'll see is that the trustee is named as the legal owner, which is if you want to protect privacy, that's a great way to do it because the trustee could be a professional trustee. So if you see um, a big amazing piece of property that you want to buy and there's big fences around it and you can't really figure out and the, the, the folks that own it are really into privacy and they have some kind of desire of their own to keep the world out, then you can say, oh, I'll just go look it up on account and find out who owns it. If it says ABC Law Firm as trustee of the ABC Mind Your Own Business Trust, you, you have no information. <laughs> like you, you, don't, you haven't learned anything. And because the beneficiaries do not have to be listed on the deed. What the beneficiaries own is what's called beneficial interest. In other words, they benefit from it and they definitely have an interest and they may or may not uh, one day receive all of the asset as their very own, depending on how the trust is drafted. But the beneficiary is not disclosed in the public documents. So there's trustor who creates it, the trustee who manages it and then, and has legal title what a heavy responsibility. And then there's the beneficiary and there's a lifetime beneficiary. Those people who are entitled to distributions, either mandatory or discretionary during the existence of the trust. And then when the trust terminates, there's the remainder beneficiary or residuary beneficiaries. 
And those people are the people that are entitled to a distribution equally or unequally, depending on how many there are or whatnot. And, and so, those, so that's how you can in, bring in a professional team. Now, if you're a small estate, of course, you're not doing a family office like the great families are, but you should still have that mindset. My point was, imagine Rockefeller. Like, if Rockefeller had just made all of that money and his estate plan was, when I die, I just want it to distribute outright to my kids because I'm going to be dead and I don't care. I want you to, let's be honest, would the Rockefeller family exist? Like, we all know Rockefeller Center and Rockefeller this and the trust and the endowments and the funds. You the Rockefeller family is still alive and well, and it's now an institution and it's very charitable and it has done great things. That would not be the case had there just been a distribution to kids like Rockefellers. I'm going to keep it a secret. The kids will find out when they, when I'm dead and they read the will. And then they just receive a big check. I'm here to not only would the money had not have grown, it would have been depleted within one generation. And I'm like, did you really work this hard to, I grew up poor. I'll, I'll share that. And I've had success and proud of myself. And I'm the first person in the history of, of my family on both sides to go to college. Well, that's an amazing accomplishment. Did, did I really just work this hard for my family to go back to work gloves within one or two generations? Really? Why is that a mature and financial decision? And the only way I'm going to be able to help my kids is through a trust, period. And if I just die and leave it out to them outright because they're good, responsible kids, well, it's a windfall for them. And if you wrap it in a trust and put some thought into how you want it, how long you want it to exist and what it's going to achieve, and maybe look to the third or fourth generation, but get your kids to be emotionally attached to it and make an emotional investment into the trust, then guess what? I'm asking, guess what? Guess what? The money grows. Because if, if you have... Uh, collaboration from everybody, it ju everything's just better. And not, it's not only just the value, fair market value and the monetary value of it all, but it's also the emotional value. Like um, at some point, the money can do other things. There can be family projects. There can be foundations established. There can be businesses that are created. There can be, like we can, if, if one family member is having a hard time meeting their health needs, then the family needs to invest in that and here's a pot of money to do it. If another family member has an opportunity to create a business that the family likes and it could be profitable for the family, then there's a pot of money to, to make that happen. If one family member is a great artist, but artists make, aren't really compensated the way they should be because art's not as appreciated in this society, but your family thinks that it, there should be equality, then we can supplement the artist's income so they have a quality of life that's fair. And as long as all the kids are behind that, then great things can happen. I'm going to wrap it up because that's about all anyone should be able to listen to. But lesson one was about estates. Estate is probate. That is a way we transfer wealth to bar creditors and through a last will and testament. The second episode was about property. We talked about real estate, real property, personal property, tangible and intangible, and the law transfers wealth differently for all of those categories and make sure the difference. Episode three, lesson three, is just a brief introduction to the concept of family bank and also uh, trust. Like what are the components of a trust? That was awesome. Log into Academy because there'll be written content and some written references. And of course, we're building on our lexicon. 
And that concludes this episode of the Boomek Show Laws of Money podcast. I'm your host, Daryl Tuttle. As a reminder, you can go to boomxacademy.com. Membership is absolutely free. And best of all, you can enroll in the BoomX Show companion course. That's all for now. Until next time, remember, yes, you can learn and leverage the laws of money to your advantage.